We'll be in Exodus chapter 7, and we're going to look at the first of the ten plagues, all right? We're going to begin tonight our official examination of the ten plagues, a very fascinating, riveting narrative in the scripture. And tonight, we're just going to look at the first plague. I don't know if we will give uh, a single night to each plague. We will see as we go. We might combine a couple of the smaller accounts together. Uh, Perhaps we'll see as we work our way through how long it takes us. But our focus tonight is to look at the first of the ten plagues, the turning of the Nile into blood. And this is recorded in Exodus chapter 7, verse 14 to verse 25. And here's the thought flow that we're going to look at. Uh, And this will be a similar thought flow that we're going to use for our examination of all the plagues. We'll look at the setting, uh, you know, kind of try and help just set the context, recall where we're at in the flow of the narrative. Then we'll look at the scene itself. We'll look at the the plague, the, the narrative as it unfolds and what happens, the account as it's recorded. But then we'll also uh, try and step back and consider the significance of each of the individual plagues uh, as we go. And so this will be our simple thought flow that we'll reproduce uh, in, in multiple you know, plagues as we examine them one by one. But uh, recall, and I know it's been a couple of weeks back, but recall what we did last time was really sit back and try and introduce the ten plagues at large. We just looked broad brush at the ten plagues. We looked at the structure, which is obviously there's intricate design involved in how they are structured and laid out. Uh, we'll review some of that as it go, as we go. Obviously, we looked at the purpose behind them, that they're ultimately for the purpose of God revealing himself, that God is showing forth his power, his supremacy, particularly targeting the Egyptian pantheon, the, uh, the gods of Egypt. And we'll look at those as we work our way through individually the, the ten plagues. Um, and But then we also dealt with the, the fact that these are supernatural events. There's many uh, in, in particularly liberal you know, theologians today that really want to look and, and argue that the ten plagues are some sort of natural occurrence, but the scriptures are pretty clear as you work through them uh, and you work through the narrative and let it speak for itself that these are supernatural events, that God is intervening in a very uh, specific way, a very grandiose way, you could even say, as he's building his resume, as he's vindicating himself, as he's humbling Pharaoh, etc. And we had really good discussion a couple of weeks back, if you recall that. Uh, and you all had some fascinating, excellent insights into the nature of the plagues, the purpose behind the plagues, and what God is doing in, in using this event to grandstand himself and his purposes, his glory, etc. And so uh, I'm excited to get into these plagues one at a time. All right, so if you got your Bible, let's again, there's our passage, chapter 7, verse 14 to verse 25. Let's go ahead and read it. If you got your Bibles, just follow along as I read. Exodus 7, verse 14 says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Get you unto Pharaoh in the morning. Lo, he goes out unto the water, and you shall stand by the river's brink against he come. And the rod which is in uh, which was turned to a serpent shall you take in your hand, and you shall say unto him, The Lord God of the Hebrews hath sent me unto you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. And behold, hitherto you would not hear. Thus says the Lord, in this thou shalt know that I am the Lord. Notice that's a big theme. We'll see it over and over. Nearly every plague account will have some phrase similar to that. This uh, you might know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will smite with the rod that is in my hand upon the waters which are in uh, the river, and they shall be turned to blood. And the fish that is in the river shall die, and the river shall stink, and the Egyptians shall loathe to drink of the water of the river. And the Lord spake unto Moses, 
Say unto Aaron, take your rod and stretch out your hand upon the waters of Egypt, upon their streams, upon their rivers, and upon their ponds, upon all their pools of water. We'll talk about it, but notice there's kind of two stages to the process. Um, but Aaron here is to stretch out uh, his hand with the rod and, and strike all the streams and rivers and ponds, all their pools of water, that they also may become blood that there may be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in the vessels of wood and in the vessels of stone. And Moses and Aaron did so as the Lord commanded, and he lifted up the rod and smote the waters that were in the river and in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, and all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. And the fish that, were, that was in the river died, and the river stank, and the Egyptians could not drink of the water of the river, and there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. And the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Neither did he hearken unto them, as the Lord had said. And Pharaoh turned and went into his house. Neither did he set his heart uh, or to this also. And all the Egyptians digged round about the river for water to drink, for they could not drink of the water of the river. Seven days were fulfilled. After that, the Lord had smitten the river. Pause there. Now, as we begin our examination of this uh, first plague, notice First, in verses 14 to 15, that Moses and Aaron's confrontation of Pharaoh, recall, it ended, that was, again, uh, about several weeks back as we were looking at uh, verses 8 to 13 here. But we saw that that confrontation before Pharaoh was Moses and Aaron go into Pharaoh's court, etc. It ended with Pharaoh's hard-hearted resistance. And so the first plague then commences as a result of that. God says in verse 14, he reports what has already been stated, right? That the uh, Pharaoh has hardened his heart. And God says, look, his heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. So the plagues are to commence, right? And we, again, we kind of ended with that several weeks back, but the idea is the battle lines have been drawn. God says, okay, it's time uh, to begin the plagues because of the hard heart of Pharaoh. Pharaoh had his chance for an easy out, but now God is going to up the ante, if you will. So God instructs Moses when and where to meet with Pharaoh. He gets specific in verse 15, go to Pharaoh in the morning, and he tells uh, Moses where Pharaoh will be. Lo, he goes to the water, and he tells you, stand on the brink, and of course, address him, etc. Now, the scriptures are clear that often God sends his prophets with these sort of very specific instructions. We won't go to all the passages listed in the notes, but we could go to several varying passages wherein God gives prophets very specific instructions on where they're to go, what they're to do, what they're to say, uh, how they're supposed to do things. And we have a number of examples of this, and the point is that God sovereignly controls these events. Right, Just like God says to Moses, all right, Pharaoh is going to be at this time, at this place, go meet him there. Same thing with Isaiah. God says, go to Ahaz and you will find him you know, in Fuller's Field. Uh, you'll say, you know, 1 Kings 13, or uh, 17 rather. God says to Elijah, where to meet Ahab. You know, I mean, the, the point is God is the sovereign God who is orchestrating his prophets, telling them where to go, what to do, when you know, to be there, etc. Now recall also, we talked about this a couple of weeks back. But as we look at the structure of the ten plagues, the, the, the way that they're structured has obvious design. And there's a number of elements that we identified, but this was one of them, if you recall, that the, the plagues seem to be in three groups of three plagues each. Remember this? And then the tenth is a final climactic plague. And recall that in these three groups of three, they share similar, you know, some similarities in structure. 
For instance, recall that plagues 1, 4, and 7, or that is the beginning of each of those you know, three triads, each begin with an outdoor mourning confrontation with Pharaoh. That's a similar sort of pattern that we'll see, as opposed to a court confrontation uh, that occurs between you know, Moses, Aaron, and Pharaoh in plagues 2, 5, and 8. And then we'll also see in plagues 3, 6, and 9, there's no confrontation whatsoever. In other words, God simply levels the plague without giving them any sort of warning or threat, whatever. He simply levels the next plague. And God will do, he'll follow that pattern all three times in, throughout those first nine plagues. And then, of course, the tenth, and we'll get to it in due time, but it is clearly a climactic plague, which, which I think is the whole point of that structure, is that it's showing you that there's design, that there's thought and purpose behind what God's doing. Uh, there's repetition. So it's all the more a sign of, you know, God's giving yet another opportunity to repent, and yet we have another opportunity or another example of, of Pharaoh hardening his heart, etc. But then it, uh, this cycle also serves to accentuate the tenth plague as the, the climactic plague. So when the first plague commences, uh, it happens as Pharaoh is going down to the Nile. And of course, this will happen a couple of other times throughout the plague narratives, but it is believed by many scholars that this what is happening here, which I think is helpful for us to understand in the setting, right? We're kind of couching this, this plague in its original setting, is, is Pharaoh is most likely going down to the Nile to perform some sort of ritual. Pharaohs would often do this on behalf of Egypt, and apparently this Pharaoh does so regularly because we will see him again at the Nile uh, in Exodus chapter 8. And again, recall uh, that this will happen more than once throughout the plague narratives. And the idea is that he's going, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to get into this a little bit more in just a second, but don't forget the Nile. If you know anything about Egyptian history, culture, Egyptology, the Nile is extremely important. There would not be a nation of Egypt without the Nile River. In fact, I think it was Herodotus, the father of uh, history, he's sometimes called. But Herodotus called Egypt the gift of the Nile. And it, recall that it's, it's the annual flooding and receding of the Nile River that gives the fertile plain wherein the, you can actually have vegetation grow. So there's, there's a strip of land, and you can look at it on a map even to this day. Right? But there's a strip of land. If you follow the Nile, it's desert everywhere except for this little strip of green that follows the Nile River. And so as a result of that, the Nile was then, of course, it was personified in so many ways. And it was worshipped. Various gods in the Egyptian pantheon were tied to the Nile. And so the pharaohs, to be good leaders for their nation, would regularly go to the Nile to perform various rituals. Sometimes it was ritual baths, sometimes ritual libations or sacrifices they would make, make for various gods on, the, on the, you know, the banks of the Nile. But the point is, this was, it, was, it was central to Egyptian uh, religion and culture. And so it's a very appropriate place for this first plague to unfold. And so as we saw, as we read just a moment ago, the plague itself unfolds in two primary stages. Do you see this? We read it just a moment ago, but let me walk you through it. First, after confronting Pharaoh and reminding him of his stubbornness, Moses is to strike the Nile with his staff and thus turn it to blood. That's verses 16 through 18, which again, notice we can just reread it. So he goes, God tells him where to meet Pharaoh. Uh, that's verse 14, 15. Verse 16, he says, and this is what you're supposed to say to him. So God gives to Moses the actual words that he is to use. And notice how it's a repetition, reminding Pharaoh of his stubbornness. In other words, this is your own fault, right? 
You are being held accountable for your choices. Uh, so he says, the Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me unto you, saying, let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. And behold, you would not hear, okay? This is your fault. Thus says the Lord, verse 17, in this you shall know that I am the Lord. So this is why the plague is happening. It's your fault. But now you're going to see that God is in charge. Yahweh is the one true and living God. The God of the Hebrews, he's called in verse 16, which recall back in verse uh, or chapter 5 in the first confrontation, Remember that uh, fateful question when Pharaoh says, who is Yahweh that I should hear him? Right? Well, now we're, he's, Yahweh's introducing himself. So he's showing him, verse 17, this, in this you will know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will smite the rod, or excuse me, I will smite with the rod uh, that is in my hand upon all the waters which are in the river and they should be turned to blood. So he's supposed to, get, he's supposed to tell Pharaoh what he's going to do before he does it. All right, and then he's also going to forewarn that once I do this, verse 18, all the fish that are in the river will die, the river shall stink, and the Egyptians will loathe to drink the water that is from the river. So that's stage one. Well, then in verse 19, this is kind of stage two of the plague, if you will, where Aaron is now, he steps on the scene, and he is to stretch his rod over the rest of the waters of Egypt, turning them into blood as well. And this is, again, uh, if you recall this a couple of weeks ago, when we talked about the whole idea of the plagues being supernatural events, not common, you know, phenomenon, natural phenomena, they're supernatural. Verse 19 is a good example uh, of, of highlighting that reality. The detail here in verse 19 about the buckets and pitchers of water also being turned to blood highlights the supernatural nature of this plague. Does that make sense? In other words, he's not, it's not simply a blooming of you know, some algae in the river, right? Uh, but rather, it is something that is occurring in not just the Nile proper, but all the tributaries. All And again, I'm not going to get lost in this, but i got to share it with you. When it says all the rivers and ponds, ancient Egypt, modern Egypt for that matter, but you know, like the Suez Canal, but it was full of canals and ponds. In fact... There's an allusion to this. Uh, it's all over Egyptian literature. There's an allusion to it in Deuteronomy. When God is promising the second generation right, the, uh, of Israel to go into the, comp, the, uh, the promised land and the conquest, and he says that this, the land that I'm leading you into is a good land, that, you, that God will water from heaven. God will water the land. He says, and you don't have to water it with your foot. Remember that? What in the world does he mean? Well, when they were in Egypt as slaves, they had to water with their feet. Meaning what? Well, uh, they, they had in Egypt, again, the, the, the Nile would flood and recede regularly. But once it had, and every time it would flood, it would deposit that, that really rich soil, all right, and then it would recede, and then they would farm that soil. But you still got to get water from the river back up to your crops because the, the, you know, the water has receded now. And so you, you have to transport that water. And Egypt had an elaborate system of canals and, and you know, various ways to transport the water. Some, in some cases, slaves, right, with buckets of water that are carrying it, some of which they had you know, various mechanisms like water wheels, et cetera, to, to make the water to you know, go out into the fields, to irrigate the fields, et cetera. The point is, it was a lot of work. And it was work that, guess who did? The slaves, the Israelites. They were the ones doing this. And yet God says, giving them the gift of the promised land, he says, when I 
give you this land. He says, I will water it from heaven. If you're obedient, he says, I will send the, the, the rains and it'll water for you, right? And it's like, whew, what a great upgrade. But the whole idea is that we should, we should envision this idea of buckets and pitchers and rivers and canals. And in other words, all these other places where the water is located, not immediately in the Nile. That's what Aaron's supposed to do. Is he's supposed to then stretch his rod out against these and, and God is going to turn all of that water also into blood. Now again, scholars do debate regarding the word blood because in Hebrew, the word blood can l- refer literally to blood as in what comes from our bodies or it also is the word for uh, just the, uh, a, a color, a word that's describing like a blood red color. So some will debate whether or not you know, the, you know what, what was the actual substance God turned it into. Uh, you decide. The Hebrew word can go either way. The traditional rendering is blood. Um, it was obviously something that caused the fish to die, right? So it's more than an algae bloom, right, as, as your, your natural phenomenon arguments will try and go. It's more than that because it, they're, they're dying, right? Does that make sense? And so we obviously have to go that far. Do you have a you have thought on that? Yes. Yes, ma'am. Okay, thank you. Yep, no, you're exactly right. You're tracking. And no, so there's, there's two stages of the process where you have two participants, Moses and Aaron, but then the end game, it's comprehensive, right? All the even including the buckets and the pitchers of water, whatever water they had set aside, even that was affected and all is turned to blood. Did you have a hand up? Was there another hand up? You were just stretching. Okay, I'm telling you. All right, just didn't want to skip over you, my man. All right, so, so, God is, is, again, and now he's grandstanding this because notice, um, and Diana just drew my attention to it back in verse uh, 20, where God says explicitly, do this in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, right? In other words, the whole point of this is it's to be a sign. It's to be a miraculous occurrence, but it's intended to, uh, again, the word sign, uh, is, it's connected to the word significant, there's significance behind the action. The point is, it's supposed to demonstrate, verse 17, that they might know, God says, that I am the Lord, that I am Yahweh. And so the whole point is, he, he, God says to Moses, this is when and where I want you to meet Pharaoh. This is what I want you to say. This is what I want you to do. And I want you to do it, obviously, in front of Pharaoh and his servants. Tell them what you're going to do before you do it. Why? Because the whole point is he's grandstanding. He wants everyone to see what happens, and to recognize that it is a God that, of course, is doing this. Now, of course, verse 21, I just mentioned this, but verse 21 reports that all the fish in the Nile did die, and the river began to stink. 
and it also makes it very clear that the Egyptians could not drink the contaminated water. So again, whether you want to argue, you know, what it actually looked like, was it actual blood, was it some, uh, you know, some sort of contaminated water, well, you decide, but the point is, God says, this is what I'm going to do, and he does it, and, and it was severe enough that all the fish die, and they can no longer drink the water. Now, again, we're going to see this in the first and second plagues, not the third, because by the third, it reverses course, but in verses 22 and 23, it reports that the magicians, ironically, can mimic the turning water into blood with their enchantments, but they succeed merely in worsening the plague and not reversing it. Right? They can reduplicate it, but they cannot reverse it. This will happen. Well, it happened first, and we talked about this already, so we don't need to spend a lot of time belaboring the point, but we talked about it earlier in the chapter when you have the confrontation and they, you know, Moses, Aaron uh, confront Pharaoh, Aaron throws down the rod, it becomes a serpent. They are able to do that. They, the magicians are also able to turn their rods into serpents, but the serpent, uh, Aaron's rod that turned into a serpent, ate up all the other serpents. And the concept is, of course, uh, important for us to see that God is the, the supreme power. But the fact that the magicians could reduplicate, that happens in that confrontation, the serpent uh, confrontation in chapter 7. It'll happen in the first plague. It'll happen in the second plague. But then by the third plague, and we'll talk about it when we get there because it's, it's, it's highly significant. It's one of the things that sets aside, you know, sets apart the third plague as, as unique. But by the third plague, they can no longer reduplicate. But even when they could reduplicate, they cannot reverse the plague. And so the whole point is that God is, of course, the sovereign one. The magicians will mimic God's power, but they, they have to ultimately acknowledge that God's power is supreme. The Yahweh, God of the Hebrews, is supreme. Now, again, the primary effect that the magician magic had, according to this text, was to harden the heart of Pharaoh to further resist Yahweh. In other words, you might ask the question, and we debated about this several weeks ago when we gave uh, almost a whole session to this idea of the magicians, the Egyptian magicians, and whether or not this was sleight of hand, whether or not uh, it's actually, you know, were they charlatans or were they uh, demonic practitioners or are they satanic? And, and there's, there's good debate to be had on that. Scholars are divided on that in that regard. But you might ask, why would God even allow the Egyptian magicians to duplicate the first, well, two plagues, but then if you, if you, you know, count the, the uh, serpent confrontation, then the first three encounters, they're able to reduplicate. Well, according to our text, the primary purpose behind it is God is allowing this in order to allow the hard heart of Pharaoh uh, to, to occur. In other words, Pharaoh looks to his magicians, his, the, the guys on his right hand, and he says, all right, can you guys do that? And since they can reduplicate it, they can't reverse it, but since they can reduplicate it, then Pharaoh is able in his mind to justify that he does not have to listen to Yahweh. Rather, his people, uh, you know, his, his power is still intact. His people still got this. We'll be fine. Now, of course, that uh, will all change by the third plague. They say, hey, man, we can't do this anymore. But do you see the purpose behind it is God is allowing that to further harden the heart of Pharaoh. Yes. Yes, absolutely. 
No, amen, amen. So did you all hear Diana's point? The point is not only was God allowing this to happen and the magicians were able to successfully reduplicate the first two plagues, that was allowed by God in order to harden the heart of Pharaoh, but also to even set up the magicians themselves that by the third plague, they have to admit that, whoa, this power is beyond us. Like, okay, we could do the first couple of things, but not now, right? And so in other words, they themselves will become mouthpieces declaring the power of Yahweh. Does that make sense? That's a powerful thought. Word. Yeah, that's exactly it. That's a good way of putting it. The hardening of his heart, unwavering stubbornness. Now we're going to see, keep an eye on this because this is only the first plague. But as we work our way through, this is one of the things that you're going to see. Not every plague will report this, but most of the plagues will have some reference to the hard heart of Pharaoh, but then it will also, you'll see changes along the way. In other words, at first, the magicians perform, you know, the merit or the, the, uh, uh, the plague. They can reduplicate it. So his heart is hardened and he says, ah, and he writes them off. But by the time we get to the third plague, they say, well, man, we can't, we can't do that. So he then will start in treating Moses and Aaron. We'll, we'll draw attention to it when we get there. But the point is, the, the Egyptian magicians kind of fade into the background. Like, they're no longer center stage. Why? Because, like, why would Pharaoh go to them? They're, they're worthless, right? They're useless. So he's going he's gonna to go straight to Moses and Aaron. And then he'll start dealing. He'll do a little wheeling and dealing. Well, you can go for just, but stay in the land. I'll let you go sacrifice to Yahweh, but stay in the land. Remember that? And then, well, that's, you know, and Moses says, nope, that's not what we're doing. And you'll see a softening, in other words, of Pharaoh, where he's like, well, this really isn't working out for me, so let's try this. And he will always try to engage them in compromise. Does that make sense? But then, ultimately, of course, he just hardens his heart, goes back on his word, what have you, until, of course, it leads to the climactic and tenth plague. So keep your eye on that as we work our way through this interesting, you know, just observe Pharaoh and his own path. I don't even want to say progress because he doesn't make a lot of progress, you know, but this kind of back and forth that he has in his own, you know, wheeling and dealing with Moses, Aaron, etc. Did you have a hand up, Lisa? I, I just think that the magicians were acting doing magic because they were doing magic to the Egyptians. Yeah. And they were doing magic. Oh, sure. Right. Oh, absolutely. And like I said, scholars are divided on that, but there's a lot that hold, that you're right. They make that exact point, and they say this is a power play that you have the the powers of darkness against God and and the actual real you know power, the light and the dark, if you will. You know, the kingdom of light versus the kingdom of darkness. Absolutely. And again, the whole point of this is God is grandstanding himself. And it's, it's amazing what, uh, especially the cumulative effect as you work your way through these 10 plagues to see what God is doing. All right, now, uh, verse 24, as we just continue through the narrative, it gives us kind of this 
what you might call pitiful picture of thirsty Egyptians attempting to find viable drinking water in order to survive. So they run to the shore, right? They, they start digging around the Nile in order to find fresh water. And apparently they find enough to survive, right? But it's this picture of their, they're starting to see, and we're going to, again, in other words, there's lots of players in this narrative. Keep an eye on everybody. Watch, obviously, God as centerpiece, right? Watch Moses and Aaron. I already told you, watch Pharaoh. We mentioned, I think Diana mentioned it, watch the Egyptian uh, magicians. Watch them. But then also keep your eye on the commoners. And just try to pay, place yourself as a common Egyptian that is doing the first digging, right? You're looking for fresh water. And then you work your way through the plagues. And it's interesting, out of all the various characters, who's the first to actually start begin to display faith in Yahweh. That's actually these common, you know, Egyptian commoners. There's several of them that actually convert. Now, I don't know if, I, I don't know if uh, we have enough biblical evidence to say the magicians converted. They do admit that God has greater power. I don't know if that's a conversion necessarily, but we will see many of the common Egyptian people convert. So keep your eye on them. But they are doing the grunt work, right? They're trying to find... Viable drinking water. And so, of course, they start digging around the, the river. Now, incidentally, it's also of, of note, just from a narrative standpoint, because this helps us reconstruct the <clears throat> 10 plagues overall. But verse 25 tells us that there were seven days uh, that were fulfilled after that the Lord had smitten the river. In other words, this little timing detail given to us here in verse 25 helps us gauge how the 10 plagues will unfold in relation to the calendar. Now, noting that Exodus chapter 8 and verse 9 tells us that there was a day between the announcement and the initiation of the next plague, we can see that eight days separated the first and second plagues. All right, so they were eight days apart from plague one and plague two. Now, some commentators highlight that ancient Near Eastern literature would often begin a sequence with a timing detail, just like we see here, which then in turn sets the standard for the rest of the sequence. In other words, we probably ought to view this as relatively normal. In other words, we should probably envision that the 10 plagues were, you know, again, as they, uh, many scholars point out, probably comparable spaces of time between them. And so this helps us discern that the 10 plagues probably spanned several months of actual time. Does that make sense? Now, there might be some exceptions to that because the text is not, uh, it doesn't give us a time marker every single time for every, you know, plague. But as many scholars point out, that that was pretty normal in ancient Near Eastern literature. There might, they might, you know, in a sequence of events where there's lots of repetition, they might at the beginning give us a time marker in order to give us a basic gauge of, of timing as it unfolds. So you should be envisioning several weeks, probably a few months that this is, is transpiring. Now, again, envision yourself, place yourself here in this plague and try and understand what's going on, the scene itself, but also don't miss the significance, all right? I want to point out two big things, and then, again, feel free to, to chime in. I've only got a few minutes left, but I want to consider two primary things that, that make this plague, and we'll try to do this with each plague, but what is the, the significance of this plague that, that we can see. I want to I point out two lines of significance, at least, and, and I just want to explore these for just a moment. First, I want to consider that the plague is, is meant to be a polemic against happy. Now, happy, 
That's H-A-P-I, not H-A-P-P-Y, okay? But it's, it's, it's the god of, it's one of the various Egyptian gods of the Nile. Now, again, the word polemic, I've used that word several times. The word polemic means attack. It's an attack against this Egyptian god. It is Yahweh demonstrating his superiority. In a sense, all the plagues are going to serve that way. Right? We talked about that a couple weeks back in our introduction to the ten plagues. But all the ten plagues ultimately are going to serve in this polemic sense, where they're going to attack the Egyptian pantheon. But then secondly, I want to also explore for a few moments how there's, there's a, a pretty strong element of poetic justice that's occurring against Egypt in this plague. And, and most of the plagues will have this element, uh, but this plague in particular seems to be emphasizing that. So let's first consider this polemic against happy. Now, the Egyptians, again, I mentioned this before, but the Egyptians personified the Nile and its inundation as the god Happy. In reliefs, Happy is pictured as a bearded man with female breasts and a hanging stomach, probably signifying pregnancy or something like that. All of these were characteristics that reflect fertility. It was a god of uh, fertility. And it's, again, when you get into much of the pagan stuff, it, it gets weird really fast. But Happy is a god of the Nile, and the job of Happy was to protect the Nile, to make sure that the Nile was continuing the process of flooding and receding and flooding and receding in order to provide that fertile ground that made Egypt the breadbasket of the ancient world. A major consequence of the changing of the Nile to blood was, of course, the death of the fish, as reported in our text. Now this, as you know, or as you can at least imagine, was a staple in the Egyptian diet. This was, a, it was, you know, their chicken, if you will, right? That was their primary meat source was the fish from the Nile. So the people would be unable to eat or drink from the river. Happy, therefore, could not supply the people's needs. That's the whole point of the polemic, is it's showing that Happy, who is supposed to be the one that guards the fertility of the Nile, that makes sure that it is meeting the needs of the Egyptian people, that Happy is being defeated. Yahweh is superior. This plague then, of course, served as a demonstration that true sustenance comes only from the hand of Yahweh and not from a false pagan deity venerated by the Egyptians. Now, we are making this point primarily as we consider it from the Egyptian perspective that God is, is humiliating the gods of, of the Egyptian pantheon and he'll do it one by one you know, in the major areas of the land and the sky and the water and God will humiliate the, the gods of Egypt. But also, fast forward in your mind, to the book of Numbers and and subsequent events in the narrative of the history of Israel. And recognize that God is, these plagues are just as much revealing Yahweh to Israel as it is revealing Yahweh to Egypt or the Egyptians. In other words, will the Israelites struggle with this reality when they get out in the wilderness? Will they struggle with the, with the thought that Yahweh is a God who can provide for them? Remember this? How many accounts do we have? We're going to run into one in Exodus 17. We'll run into a couple more in the book of Numbers where they run out of water, they get thirsty. What's the first thing they do? Blame God. They get hungry. What do they do? Blame God. But God, whether he is in Egypt smiting the Nile in order to humiliate happy and to prove that this is a false god and Yahweh is the one who can provide, whether he's in Egypt dealing with the Nile or he's out in the wilderness and he strikes a rock and water comes out, right? Or he rains food down from heaven. Either way, 
God is the one who is teaching not only the Egyptians, but he's teaching his people that Yahweh is the one who is the one who provides sustenance, water, food. It comes from the hand of God. And of course, this is uh, uh, we'll see that theme threaded throughout uh, the, the Egyptian you know, plague narratives as well as the wilderness wandering period. But I also want you to consider not only this polemic against happy, but I also want you to consider the poetic justice that's occurring in this plague against Egypt. Now, I want to I want to just say there's a couple of there's two primary <clears throat> and maybe you can think of, of of another one, but there's two primary ways that I can see this plague as a as a uh, a poetic justice against Egypt, and then I want to just consider introduce you to the subject of God's kind of justice. Uh, because we're going to make a, a lot. Uh, we're going to talk about that a lot. Make a big deal about that when we get to Exodus chapters 20, 21, and we you know, start getting into the law. But this idea of poetic justice, or God repaying in kind the Egyptians, is seen in this plague in at least two ways. First, recall our observation back in chapter 5, verse 21, namely that Israel was idiomatically made to stink before Pharaoh. Do you remember that? It's a Hebrew idiom. That's actually not only Hebrew, it's an ancient Near Eastern idiom. shows up in lots of different cultures and languages. But the idea is to, to stink in someone's nostrils is to be an offense. Something that they consider offensive. But now, not only, you know, and, and at that time, right, the, the Egyptians, well, it was actually the, the Hebrew foremen were upset at Moses and Aaron because they thought they, Moses and Aaron, made the uh, Hebrew people stink in the nostrils of Pharaoh. But we'll see that now Yahweh gives Pharaoh something that really stinks. We're going to see this in, in not only this plague, but the next with the frogs, where it says it again. Two, the first two narratives is, again, there's a ton of word plays like this. Well, I'm going to highlight them as we go, but not all of them because there's just an enormous amount. But the Hebrew literature loves to do this. Word repetition, keywords. So, for instance, in chapter 1, there was an interesting Hebrew word used by the Egyptians that basically is slang for calling the Hebrew people vermin. That they just multiply like rats, right? That was the whole idea is the, the Pharaoh, they were upset that the, the Hebrew people were, you know, they had this big population boom and they thought they were going to take over the land. And, and it uses a particular word that they were basically like vermin taken over, that they were, you know, like, like, like rabbits, or rats, or what have you. They were multiplying beyond number, covering the land, the Egyptians said. Well, then, that same word is used later in the, in the plague narratives, when God says, you want, you want to see what real vermin look like when they cover the land? Let me show you this. Right? And then God will send the plague of flies, or lice, or something else, and it'll use that word to describe that sort of swarming effect where the ground is covered and everywhere you go, you step on a frog or you step on a, you know, a or whatever. Well, the idea is that God will do that multiple times. He'll use something that the Egyptians said early about the Hebrews, and then he will flip it on later in the plague narratives. And we see this with the idea of stink. You think the Egyptians, or the Egyptians, you, you think the Hebrews stink? You look down your nose at them and you think that you are a higher, better culture than the Hebrew people. He says, let me give you something that really stinks. And he fills their land with blood, dead fish, dead frogs, whatever. And now they can't hardly stand the smell. But secondly, the, we'll also see there's significance, I think, with the idea of, of the Nile turning to blood. And you see this pretty clearly. 
I think when you connect it back with Exodus chapter 1. Namely, that the first plague serves as a sort of repaying Egypt for all the innocent blood of the babies that they threw into the Nile. Recall back in Exodus chapter 1, that was their means of disposing of the babies. And yet what's here, a poetic justice of sorts, is God says, okay, you want the taste of blood? Here it is. Does that make sense? Now, before you think that this is somehow beneath God, let me, some, let me try and summarize God's kind of justice. Give me just a few minutes on this. We will d- dive way deeper into this when we get to Exodus 20, 21, 22, you know, that section uh, of the book of Exodus where we start seeing the law. But I want to introduce you to this concept, and then we'll wrap it up for tonight. God's kind of justice is what scholars often call retributive justice, which requires punishment of the wrongdoer, restitution uh, of the victim, and rehabilitation of the wrongdoer when possible. There are crimes that God says they need to be executed. But when there are crimes where they don't need to be executed, there's, there's rehabilitation as a goal. But all of these aspects are incredibly important to God's definition of justice. Now, we're, again, we're going to spend more time on this later. Our justice system in America used to be built on this. We used to have an understanding of a Judeo-Christian worldview and a, and a divine view of genuine justice. We have lost this. And it is, it is killing us. It is like we are going nowhere fast or, or in a really bad place fast when we start undermining what genuine justice is. But notice the goal of this kind of justice, a full type of justice that God has in the scriptures The goal of it is restoration of a society as close as possible to the state that it was before the wrong. And so the two primary elements that you find in God's justice system is retribution and restitution. Again, rehabilitation of the criminal when possible, but this is what brings rehabilitation to the criminal. Is number one, retribution. They need to be punished. Number two, restitution. They need to pay back what they took. Now, Think about these two ideas just briefly, and then we'll, again, I'm just kind of introducing them to them. We'll get into them more detail later. But retribution is really important. One scholar put it this way, but the suspicion that retribution is somehow fundamentally immoral runs deep in our culture. Our culture has rejected this idea that retribution should be a thing in many quarters of our culture. Yet retribution is important to divine justice system. Why? Because retribution implies responsibility for one's actions. And responsibility implies free agency. One of my uh, favorite scholars in this regard, John Stott, put it this way. He says, To shirk responsibility in order to avoid punishment is to deny basic humanity. The image of God in man implies free agency and decision-making. To shirk responsibility and deny free agency is to put man on par with infants, imbeciles, and domesticated animals. End quote. That's such a great quote. But he says, You want to be treated like a human being? then punishment is, is important because punishment in, in, implies responsibility. Impl- and responsibility implies free agency. That's humanity. Your free agency, your ability to make one choice above another is part and parcel of your humanity, being made in the image of God. And so punishment is, you know, it's, it's a, a logical referent or a logic, the logical next step to free agency. So restitution is, is the, the other side of the coin, if, if you will, of God's justice. 
and restitution attempts to restore the, uh, the victim, what was taken from them by the criminal. And this act restores, restores order by, in a sense, reversing the crime. So we'll get into more details of this in, in later in the, in the law. But for instance, if you steal something, according to the law, what are you supposed to do? When you're caught as a thief, what do you do? That's right, you return it. But you return it, and now it actually is varying. There's a fourfold, there's a, a fivefold, I think there's even a sevenfold, depending upon the grossness of the crime. In other words, we'll get into this more later, but like you and I, in our modern system, we have the idea of theft versus grand theft, right? In other words, the, the greater the crime, the greater the punishment. It's called lex talionis. It's a Latin phrase that refers to the law of retaliation. The idea is equal. You know, punishment must fit the crime. That's basically the idea. That's a biblical idea. And restitution is an attempt, it, it recreates the, the crime back upon the criminal, in a sense, where they not only have to give back what they took, but they now have to be stolen from themselves. They have to give back more than they took. Does that make sense? God says, you don't just give back what you took. No, 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 that is not restitution. You have to give back more than you took. Now, this idea is, of course, uh, it's really important when it comes to the, just, the, the, the concept of justice, and we'll see it played out throughout the, uh, you know, the, uh, the law in particular is really going to get into this. But this full type of justice is essentially where the crime is then reversed by restoring what was taken from the victim, also de, uh, depriving the criminal of time, money, or even his life, depending on the degree of severity of his crime which he originally sought to take from his victim. That's the whole idea of capital punishment, is you sought to take someone else's life, or perhaps you succeeded and did take someone's life. So what's restitution? You forfeit your own. That's biblical justice. Now, as we work our way through this, we need to understand, and we will work our way through it you know, with, with, with uh, great precision, and it's going to have multiple effects. First, we ought stand in awe of God's justice. That God has an incredible sense of justice. That he has defined what justice is for us. And when we try to redefine what justice is, we get ourselves into a boatload of trouble. And when we say that, you know, when we redefine true justice, then we actually rob it from a society. And the society begins to crumble. But not only will we stand in awe of God's justice, but we will also begin to stand in awe of God's grace. Because the reality is, when we stand beneath God's justice, is there a single one of us that can live up? Can we pass the test? Are we going to make it to heaven on our own standard? Of course not. Judged by this standard, God's standard of absolute justice, all of us fail. And that's the point. The law is meant to be a tutor that drives us to Christ, and we will see that. The New Testament is very clear on that. But the plagues, and this one in particular, we'll see it through really all the plagues in a sense. But we see God in many ways repaying Egypt tit for tat. You kill my children, I'm going to kill your children. You're going to shed innocent blood, I'm going to let you taste blood. Right? Do you see how God does this? And he's doing it not only in a sense of, of humiliating the, the Egyptian pantheon, but he's also restoring justice. 
to a fallen world. And God's promised to do that. He's given, he's, he's, he's delegated that process of enforcing justice to human governments. But let's be honest, how often do we fail in that? How many times do human governments redefine justice or shirk justice or whatever? But will justice ultimately prevail? Will God actually bring it about? Yes, he will. And when he does, we're going to see, again, uh, that's, that's Book of Revelation stuff, right? God will bring ultimate justice. But here is a picture of it. Does that make sense? He's bringing a picture of what true justice looks like as, as Egypt gets a taste of its own evil that they perpetrated against the Hebrews for generations, attempting genocide against the Hebrew people. And God says, watch this. And he repays them back in kind. All right. That's a heavy thought. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Yeah, no, that's good. So, uh, so yes, God will have. There's. It's pretty elaborate when we in this, you know, Leviticus stuff primarily. But when we get to the sacrificial system, there's sacrifices that will. There's varying purposes to the different sacrifices. Some of which to restore the the what the sinner has done wrong. You know, like I said, to restore what they stole. For instance, that's not necessarily. A sacrifice, that's part of the restitution process, but a sacrifice is then part of the restitution given back to God, if that makes sense. Because when a sin happens, you have multiple relationships that have been hindered or broken, right? You have the human relationship, and then you have us between us and God, the divine relationship. And so what we'll see in, in the varying you know laws is we'll see God address the civil relationship, that's human to human, and then he'll talk about the spiritual relationship. That's, you know, human to God. And both of those need to be remedied. And so, but God has given different remedies for those, those things. Does that make sense? The sacrifices primarily is their relationship with God. Yeah, no, that's good. And we will, we will explore that more. I mean, I'm giving you a really short answer, but yes, we will get into that much further because it is, it's an intriguing concept. Diana, you got a thought? Yeah. 
Exactly, you're tracking. Excellent. Do you see? Do you see what Diana just the connection she just made? Is is Egypt punished? Is, does retribution take place? Yes. But do they also make a payment of sorts? Yes. Right. The Hebrew people, when they leave in the Exodus, they plunder the Egyptians. They impoverish the the Egyptian nation when they leave. So, do you see that? There's the idea of the punishment and payment. Both of them take place. So both sides of the coin, if you will, of God's justice. Excellent observation. Yep, that's exactly right. Yeah, and then again, when you understand this, and we'll and, and we'll get into it further, but this is what makes the gospel so amazing, is when we start realizing on our own, there's no way that we can withstand this sort of justice. But has justice been met? Yes, through the cross work of Christ. Jesus paid the price that you and I deserve to pay, but could never pay. But he stepped in. Justice was met. Grace was served. All because God enforced his own justice. And he fulfilled it in the personal work of Christ. And the more we understand that, the more in awe we stand of our God. He is an incredible God that is entirely self-consistent with himself. And that's what upholds the universe. That's what makes him trustworthy. He's faithful to all of his attributes and all of his promises and all of his threats. Praise the Lord. All right, let's close in prayer. Next time we'll jump into plague number two, the frogs. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your grace. Thank you, Lord, for this this text, this display of your marvelous justice, your terrifying justice when we think about it, how all of us are sinful. We, we fall so incredibly short, infinitely short. We fall short of the glory of God, Paul tells us. And yet, Lord, we who stand beneath your justice and deserve every punishment, just like Egypt, Egypt of old, and yet those of us who humble ourselves before God receive the crosswork of Christ and receive the payment that he has made on our behalf can have that justice satisfied and we can be released. We can be forgiven. Lord, what a good God you are. And as we wallow in that and revel in that and share that with the lost and dying world, may we also realize that there will be those who reject. There will be those like Pharaoh who hardened his heart in total resistance rejecting your power and your position and your grace and your mercy. And therefore, they must inherit your wrath. You must enforce your justice. You must respect their decision to reject you. And so you punish them. Lord, may we recognize that. May we stand in awe of it. May it cause us to fear you in a godly biblical sense. So Lord, as we continue our study of the 10 plagues and we look at them one by one, might you encourage us and challenge us in our understanding and help us all the more get a better glimpse of your glory and understand your person. So we commit it to you. In Christ's name, amen.